Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey guys, and welcome to episode four of the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today we have a very special guest, someone who is near and dear to my heart, but who has very inferior uh, views on the subject of yogurt brands. Um, and that is uh, my mentor of sorts, a uh, fantastic PT out of Boston PT and Wellness up in Winchester, Massachusetts, and one of the pain and rehab specialists at Barbell Medicine. Uh, Michael Amato, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jake, for having me, and thank you, Danielle. Now, can we just get – I know a lot of people are going to want to get this out of the way. Um, what is your favorite brand of yogurt? So this is like a an ancient battle that's been waging for a while. Um, like my mom even knows you because of our Instagram battles. But um, it would be Siggy's, uh, the Icelandic skier company. Now, are you aware that there is only one brand of actual skier in the United States that uses Icelandic cultures? Uh, I do not know that. That's that's Icelandic provisions. Okay. Not not Siggy's. So I don't I don't know that we can technically call Siggy's skier. Um, I think that we maybe need to reframe our our contextual factor surrounding Americanized Icelandic yogurt. That's okay. I'm pretty sure um, there's going to be a lot of analogies to our conversation today that uh, display some of the inauticity of uh, <laughs> of pain and rehab. That's uh, similar to the. Siggy's debate. How many people do you think have just stopped listening to this podcast because we initially started talking about yogurt? How many followers? How many listeners do you have? Zero. We haven't actually launched the podcast yet. <laughs> okay, so I guess I guess we haven't lost any. That's okay. Good yeah. statistic. Yeah. Yeah. Net gain. <laughs> uh. Anyways, so the reason that that I I had talked to Danielle about bringing you on is because I think that you're a really good resource when it comes to discussing pain 
and trying to kind of figure out and navigate through that in the context of like athletics and, and individuals who work out. Um, and so I thought it would be very applicable to our conversation regarding performing artists and kind of the world of dance. So, but before we kick it off, can you tell people more about yourself? Cause I really didn't give them any information in my intro. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was a wonderful intro, uh, maybe the best I've gotten. So I don't know I wouldn't sell yourself that short. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I've been a physical therapist for some time now. I graduated from BU in 2013 and, uh, kind of, and that was like, you know, pre Instagram days. Um, like I didn't even have a smartphone until after I graduated, but I've worked in various settings. I've done like outpatient hospital-based uh, PT. I've done a little bit of cash-based in a gym setting. I've worked for like a big, bigger private outpatient setting organization. And uh, now I'm at my current uh, job, which is at Boston PT and Wellness, where I do primarily like orthopedic sports med outpatient work. Um, and I'm also in charge of like the clinical education there. So I do a lot of the student uh, intake setting up with CIs. I'm a CI myself. Um, and I work with, uh, more famous Instagram PTs, uh, Zach Gabor and Steph Allen, uh, who run level up. So I've also helped them run level up, uh, as a mentor and kind of creating some of the curriculum. And then more recently in the last year, I joined the barbell medicine team with Michael Ray and Derek miles and kind of helping them with some of the online consoles we do and some of the content, uh, podcasting ourselves, although we haven't been that consistent lately. Um, so yeah. And I've been living in Boston for like a long, a long time now. So what is your, and this is a question that I, Danielle's going to probably like just laugh or like give me like a weird, like a private message or something. What is your favorite Boston food? Oh, I don't. So I guess we're like famous for seafood, but I really haven't had a lot of opportunities to kind of like try that stuff out. Most of the pub food is really good. So there's some good burger places. I, I really liked, uh, JM Curly's in the city makes a really good burger. And they have, like, this weird kind of, like, 90s hip-hop vibe. And it's, like, really dark in there. And they give you free, like, bacon drizzled popcorn. So that's really good. Wow. <laughs> um, there's also a lot of good Italian. But uh, you have to kind of, like, know where to go. All right. So let's, let's just give the people what they want. Can you, can you talk to us about pain? What, what is pain? So when I was... <laughs> When I was looking at all your questions, I was like, I was like, how can I answer these questions without like, you know, deconstructing the actual question? But unfortunately, like this one needs to be like deconstructed. <laughs> so I think like I think if you asked me what is pain like three years ago, I would have had a definite answer um, because like coming out of school, it's kind of like there. Right. It's like we you know that pain is a big part of like outpatient kind of like orthopedic setting um reasons for why people come in to see you but it's never really talked about like kind of like what it is and what it means and beyond some of the very basic you know nociception spinal tract kind of stuff you get in neuro um and then i kind of you know did the deep dive into more of the explained pain mosley and butler kind of uh angle on it and i think when you get exposed to that uh, early on because they are so popular 
then you take that as like the only view. And they do they do a good job of like uh, making it very accessible and making it like educationally friendly because they're especially uh, Butler is very geared towards like education. Um, I think he has a background in education. So if you asked me three or four years ago and I told you like pain is a protector, you know, it's uh, it's a way of kind of like alerting your body to, you know, uh, seeking safety, that kind of classic narrative from Mosley and Butler. But I think like fast forward a couple years later, I'm almost apt to like not answer the question because I think it means I think there's some commonalities across the entire like human experience of what pain feels like and what it is. Like it's obviously different than other sensations and other perceptions, but um, I'm almost more apt to kind of say pain is kind of what the person says it is uh, who's in pain. And it, that changes, I think whether it, it changes like, you know, painful experience to painful experience or it changes day to day, year to year. Um, but I don't think there's like one, what it is kind of thing. And part of that too, is like a lot of conversations that me and Michael Ray have been having lately and we're working on a project. He's actually taking over, uh, it's a book. Um, and he's taking over kind of like the, what is pain section. And a lot of it's diving into like history and language of pain, so he has much more eloquent thoughts on it, but a lot of it does open itself up to interpretation from the individual, I think. And I think that's where uh, our job comes into play is like exploring what that what pain means to somebody instead of kind of imposing like our views about what we think pain is. So how do we navigate that as a clinician then? Uh, it's a lot of like question and listening, uh, like back and forth. So I'll, I mean... A lot of it's just kind of like letting them tell their story um, in a clinical setting. So I'll let someone kind of just go and I won't interrupt until they either like ask a question or they are like uh, they're done. They're like literally done. So I won't interject um, until then. And we have research to say like that's we're really bad at that as like a medical field. <laughs> like I, I think I think there's always a new study that comes out that says like we interrupt sooner and sooner. It's probably like under 30 seconds. Um, so I'll let them tell their whole story, and I can get a I can get a sense of like how they're thinking of it, explaining it, and associating with it. And and at some point during the conversation, I will ask them like, what do you make of it? Like, what do you think is going on? What have you been told? So I'll get like more explicit information from them, and that kind of like gives me uh, an idea for where they're coming at. You know, like, do they actually have, do I have, do they have what I think are maladaptive beliefs that need addressing or are, is their sense of it not going to get in the way of the rehab process? So a lot of times I just kind of, you know, try to get myself out of the way. So I don't, I don't address it in an explained pain kind of fashion that people would think pain science happens in very often. Um, I just try to get myself out of the way when necessary. But dressing up the entire, like, whatever I say, whatever the exercises are geared towards, whatever the environment looks like, is supportive of something that's more adaptive rather than maladaptive. So are you downplaying? Are you downplaying their um, maybe, like, hypervigilance on pain itself? I don't think I'm downplaying it as much as, like, validating and then kind of almost um, 
keeping in mind what I want to address possibly down the road. Cause I don't like coming out of the gates too hot in the, on the first day. Cause they don't know me, you know, I'm just trying to get to know them and let them kind of trust me first. Uh, it's different if I'm doing like, let's say, cause I'm talking in more of like a classic clinical setting where I'm going to have someone come in face to face and I'm going to be working with them for a few weeks. But I guess that's the majority of my work. But if I'm doing like a con- like an online consult, it's just a one-off. Um, you know, I might I might give them more concrete kind of opinions and thoughts on kind of what they're asking. But they're also looking for that too, you know. And they're also I think more ready for change because they're seeking barber medicine, and you know they are usually familiar with what our angle is. So that's almost like a little different of a situation. But in the more like classic clinical setting, I'm not really going too hard on day one. It's more like validating, listening, reassuring, and then giving them a plan. I find that like a lot of people, they just want like clear, and, and this comes up in the research too with a lot of qualitative research, which is like, I would need to like find the studies specifically. Uh, but Ben Cormack does a good job of like highlighting these studies where it's like people want a very clear plan on day one and they want to make sure that they've been heard. So I think that's like where our job lies in terms of like, hearing out their pain and understanding what their pain is. It's a lot less sexy than like uh, what I would have said three years ago. <laughs> would have been like, oh, you know, pain's an output and, you know, blah, blah. <laughs> not that that's wrong. About some of those maladaptive behaviors that you've seen in your patients? Yeah, I think a lot of it, I think, comes down to, I mean, if they're having like actual false beliefs about like physiology and structure, I think that's some that's some low-hanging fruit we can address, you know? I think that's where Mosley maybe does a good job, where if people think, like, their discs are actually, like, slipping out of their spine, or if they think, you know, that their nerves are, like, being, like, crushed by their facet joints. I think, like, those are where we're, like, we're, like you know, we get enough of that in school in terms of anatomy and physiology. We should be kind of quote-unquote experts on that so we can maybe explain that in a way that's relatable to them you know because i i I think we forget that a lot of our patients don't have any background in that and if if anything if even if they have like a little bit of a background in it, it's almost like the dunning-kruger effect where like knowing a little bit is almost worse um so i think like for someone who has no background in it they're usually pretty receptive because like you know they should trust you as a medical professional hopefully especially if they're like seeking you out, they probably have a little bit of that trust in you. So I think like those are low hanging fruit, but when it comes to more of like, I guess some of the psychological tendencies and some of the kind of what we see in a lot of the psychosocial research as like fear avoidance, hypervigilance, you know, pain, anxiety, pain, self-efficacy. It's kind of messy research. And a lot of it shows that like, you know, some of them are not correlated well to pain and function. Some of them can improve, but without having pain and function improve, or pain and function can improve, but maybe, you know, pain anxiety or pain uh, or fear avoidance doesn't change. So it gets kind of messy in terms of like, are we supposed to be picking them out and actually changing these factors? Or do we just create enough of a supportive environment to have them progress? Um, So a lot of the a lot of what my angle usually is, is making it less about the pain as an object. So making, making the rehab more 
meaningful to them in terms of tying it to their function and their activity and their identity rather than rather than targeting the rehab as like we're trying to remove the pain as an object so i think that's where a lot of like poor treatment strategies poor beliefs poor narratives come out is like separating the pain from the person and making it its own object because that's like that and that's my opinion in a way that based on like my reading and kind of the way I've been discussing it with people is I like, I don't, I think that's a, I think it's a poor long-term model of looking at pain, looking at it as like its own object. I think it's always like relational to the person. It's always like in relation to an activity, in relation to an identity. I know that's a very long-winded way of answering that. So is the classical kind of pain scale that we would use as a clinician, um, is is a zero out of ten pain as a goal just not realistic? Is that mm-hmm. not something that we should focus on? Because I feel like that's a very common thing. Is that we kind of expect? I think coming out of school that everybody's everybody's going to be pain free. There's no reason that you can't live pain free or live pain free. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. I like kind of going through my brief foray as a clinician. And like in talks with you and other people, it just seems like maybe that's not as realistic as what we thought. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, no, I mean, if you actually talk to somebody, they, they, and discuss some of the stuff, they know they're not going to live like a pain-free life. Like that's, you know, you, you know, you're going to have like intermittent pains throughout your life. Um, I think what the hard thing to wrap my head around sometimes is like the person who's been in persistent pain for a long time and, and the pain really is what's interfering with their functions. And so I think it's a hard conversation to tackle. I think you have to, like you have to figure out what's an acceptable amount of pain what's a productive amount of like pain to do while you're doing activities. But I do think like that reducing their pain is something that's important to them because if they're in eight out of 10 pain all day and it prevents them from doing what they want to do, you know, a lot of times it's just, it's so easy to think like, well, if my pain was a two out of 10, my life would be that much better. And I think that's hard. Um, I mean, there is some research from like uh, Ronnie Thompson that talks about like living well despite chronic pain. And these people do have like moderate to high levels of pain reported, but still function well. But you know, they're a subset of the population. They're like 20 to 30%. So it's tricky. I, I think I think on one side, we do need to focus less on like reducing the absolute number and making that our only metric. But it is what people want. And it is like what makes us like feel good when we discharge patients too. Like if someone comes in a lot of pain and then they leave and they're in a lot less pain and they're doing what they want to do, like we feel like we did our job rather than like them coming in like eight out of 10 and then leaving eight out of 10. And they're like, yeah, I guess I could do more. You know, I, I at the, I, I'm kind of making it black and white on purpose, but I think there's some value in it. Um, I don't ask the number. I haven't asked the number in a really long time, but I am having conversations about like the severity of it, the quality of it, the frequency of uh, the painful experiences, um, and all in relation to like during and kind of after like desired activity. So there are discussions around it. I'm just not like making it absolute where it's like if we don't get below a four out of ten, then like we fail because there needs to be progress. Like people want progress. Yes. I, I would say that that's a fair statement. <laughs> so now if we kind of, if we kind of touch on some of these things that you just mentioned, but maybe shift more toward like a dance or performing arts environment, 
Um, Cause Danielle and I had talked a little bit about this. And I think one of the common things we see a lot, especially in, in dancers is like, they have this like very stoic nature about them sometimes where like on stage, it's always like very, you know, aesthetic and set a certain way. And then as soon as they come off in one of the wings, they're just like, like dying, you know, like, Oh my God, my hip hurts. But there's this mentality of like consistently kind of pushing through things. Yeah. And Danielle can probably speak to this probably better than I can, but I know at least in my practice and working with a lot of dancers, you know, that, that self-reported pain number, like even though I, I like Mike try to fo- not really focus on that, but I feel like that self-reported pain number can not really shift very often. And then it has to be more of a, a change in, um, you know, how is, how does turnout feel? How do your lines feel? How does something very specific to them, um, and using that more as an objective or goal versus, versus pain. Yeah. Um, so it's funny when you asked me to be on this podcast, I was like, I don't know anything about, I don't know anything about dance, but <laughs> I, I have worked with dancers in the past and I, I, and I do understand what you're saying. I think this is, it goes back to our conversation in the beginning, like what is pain? If you ask a dancer, what is pain? It's going to be a lot different of an answer than if you ask, you know, like anyone else, right? It's like everyone, every subculture is going to have its own meaning ascribed to pain. And so that it's an, it's an interesting it's, it's like an interesting qualitative research uh, question. It's like if you talk to dancers about their pain and their performance, like what are their beliefs about it? Um, and I would almost encourage like all clinicians to kind of approach their patients in that way where it's like you're really trying to absorb as much like qualitative information from them because then you get to know your population. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's a tough it's a tough line to straddle because it, in and this is like pretty common in most most sports. It's kind of like the, you know, just bear and grit it. You know, like if if you if you display your pain and your opponent your opponent's gonna like you know exploit you or the coach is gonna bench you, and that it's not you know everyone's in pain. You're just the one that's not like sucking it up. And I think that's obviously an issue um, because that creates burnout and you know, I increased risk of persistent pain and long-term um, health, like poor prognostic indicators. But it would come down to me like figuring out, and this is a conversation I have with a lot of my lifters. <clears throat> so most of my like athletic population is either runners or lifters. And it's easy to work, easier to work with them because it's like I can put a little more quantitative value on some things. But it's like, you know, what uh, what are we what are we labeling labeling as like productive work or productive practice or productive performance when in relation to pain? So if I was thinking about like a more of a dancer or more of a performance artist, then I'm thinking, you know, what's going to, what's going to be productive for your skill and productive for your, you know, onstage performance in relation to the pain. So I don't think it should be absolutely pain free, but I do think there's probably like an inflection point where, more is not better. Um, and I don't know the answer for that, like across the board, but it's probably gonna come down to the individual and, you know, and all those fancy terms you just used. (laughs) I need like a glossary when I'm talking to you. That's how I feel when I talk to you half the time. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. We're about to get real frenetic up in here. Just like discussing (laughs) dance terminology. So, 
Daniel, can you like add in, I guess your perspective on like coming from like being a dancer and, and doing collegiate dance and all that stuff in regards to some of the stuff that Mike has talked about from a young age, you are definitely told that you will not dance without pain. I think part of that comes from the point shoes and the structure of a point shoe is made that it's not going to feel good on your foot. Right. And no one expects it to. So, you know, you start out with toe pain, it goes to ankle pain. And then I dealt with a lot of chronic pain in my ankles, but I was always told that unless your pain gets above a four or five out of 10, you can push through it, right? You're not doing anything worse to your ankles if it's under that threshold, which I'm sure we can discuss. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, and I think another part is the nature of dance injuries is that they're so chronic and dancers don't get that many acute injuries. So we don't deal with going from no pain to immediate pain. It's always a gradual onset. And sometimes I don't even remember some days where I didn't have pain dancing in college. So Mm -hmm. it becomes such a standard that like you can't remove it from the, from the practice. Yeah. So it's hard because like, that's a cultural constraint. Like, I don't, I don't know if individual PT can really put a big dent in it. I mean, as a collective field with a lot of other professionals surrounding you, you can start to shift the narrative. But, you know, dance is older than physical therapy by, like, a landslide. So, you know, it, it, it is an uphill battle. Um, like, it doesn't have to be like that, but it is like that. And it's been like that, I assume, for very, a very long time. So is that something that just becomes rooted in the identity and and the the concept of dance itself? Like, do we just get to the point where we equivocate, like, dance with having some sort of pain and having to push through that? I mean, it sounds like that's what Daniel exactly, like, pretty much said. Like, you, like the expectation was set so early that um, there was no, like, there was no contrast to that. I think the expectation is there for ballet when you're on point. I don't think it's there for other styles of dance as much. Um, But that I treat mostly ballet dancers, I think I see that expectation come up a lot. Um, There's also a lot of comparison in dance between dancers. Like your best friend has ankle pain. The girl sitting beside you has knee pain. The girl across from you has hip pain. Yeah. But you're all putting on the face that you're fine because someone's coming in to watch you. And if you don't get that spot, you're not going to make it on stage and get to do what you love. Yeah, so that's interesting because it's like a it's like a support group, but maybe not like the most um, like like the best coping strategies that are being um, encouraged. Um, cause like if anything, you're, you're, you're like taking cues from your friends that you're supposed to hide it. Um, when it, when, when it matters, uh, you can talk about it afterwards, but you know, when, when the, when it's showtime, you're not supposed to let that display. So it's interesting. And, and I'm sure it's very similar. Like you could make an argument that's happened with like concussions in the past with like football, um, people going out to play when they shouldn't because, you know, their teammate does the same thing. So why, why would you not do that? It's interesting. Now, Danielle, do you think that that's something that's become uh, a positive, I guess, like part of your identity or a positive adaptation to the world of dance? Or is it something that is maladaptive? 
I think dancers like saying that they have a high pain threshold. That makes them kind of confident and that they're more of a an artist or an athlete due to that. It kind of it builds up their self-esteem in a weird way when they can push through an injury and not seek out treatment. Or they seek out treatment and the doctor says to rest, but they're like, I know my body better than this doctor who's seen me one time. And I think that's an issue that dancers have with doctors a lot of times is that doctors will bench us and that it takes a huge psychological toll on us. So we're just like, nope, we're just going to ignore their advice. We're going to keep dancing anyways. Um, And I know Jake and I talked about this earlier, but dancers don't have the best access to healthcare in general. So that's another issue that they have to break through even to see someone if they're at the point that they truly can't dance due to the injury. No, I know, I know you're an athletic trainer too, Jake. And like a big thing when I was in AT school was like talking about, I remember some of my classmates thinking about going into performing arts. Um, I don't know if you've had athletic trainers work with you, Danielle, but I feel like that would be maybe a easy way of having more access to healthcare. Um, you know, obviously there's, you know, you discuss like standards of practice and stuff like that, but it would, it would seem like it would seem appropriate given access to athletic training staff in other sports. Um, and I know there's a whole debate about, you know, if you call it dance a sport or you call it dancers athletes. And, you know, I, I think Jake and I have talked about this in the past. Um, but I think the demands are there that, you know, you could have somebody on site, which would probably be beneficial. Daniel, did you have an AT? Um, no, we had a physical therapist come in once every week, and she had a two-hour slot that you could sign up for. But other than that, we didn't have any access to healthcare, and we didn't have anyone backstage at shows or anything. Um, and I went to a very well-known collegiate dance program, and I would think many of the dance programs don't have access. I know Shenandoah does, but I think that's a rare thing. Yeah. And I think that's kind of standard. Like when we look at collegiate dance programs, the some of the research that I have seen, and this is mostly like qualitative stuff, like you know just sampling who will respond from a program to program basis. Um, but I think the rates that I've seen are probably between 40 and 50 percent of collegiate dance programs have access to um, some sort of healthcare provider. Now, the difficulty ends up becoming that that definition of a healthcare provider can sometimes just be the school, like student health, right? Mm-hmm. So when we when we look at like you know is there a direct access like medical provider, whether it's a doctor, physical therapist, or an athletic trainer, those rates tend to be pretty low. But like what like what Mike was saying, and you know I've had some experience, um, you know backstage, and Danielle and I have talked about this before. Um, I think that having an athletic trainer or someone, anyone that can be there for acute injury management, chronic injury management, you know, exercise prescription, um, emergency care backstage, all that stuff can can very much aid, I think, in contributing to like a more positive culture around pain and injury in, in a collegiate dance program. Because where it gets really tricky, too, is like this isn't like another sport where, you know, you you get hurt. For a season, you redshirt, you know, you're good. You can just train and you're back next season. Mm-hmm. This is very much linked to, you know, your class performance, your education, your success, your career, if you're going into like, you know, professional dance or performing arts. And so, you know, a labral tear that requires a surgery, that's you're you're done for a semester. 
sometimes maybe even a whole year, depending on how long it takes you to rehab from that. And so I think the I think the stakes are really high, and that may also contribute to that um, understanding and identity that that we have as as a dance pop, like community when it comes to like pain and injury. Yeah, I would almost think like it sounds like from my perspective on the outside that dancers need an outlet uh, to be able to talk to like a third party about their pain and injury. That's maybe just not there. And that could just be like the biggest obstacle that, that, that we're facing in that population. Um, and someone that's like on the same team in a way as like the instructor. So I, I, that it needs to be a collaborative environment. Cause I, you know, that can be toxic in other sports too, where like the athletic trainer or the PT staff or the doctor is butting heads with the coach and, and the athlete is getting torn in between. Um, so that, that, that dancer needs a supportive environment where people are actually like caring for them and they need to be, they need to be, they need to feel like they're being cared for. And I think that, I think that that gets, that gets tricky and hard, right? Cause you have a lot of variables that you need to manage and think about. And so we had Megan on recently and she talked about kind of managing some of those things in a, in a Broadway uh, show, right? Like costumes and, you know, where are they changing? Do they have to run up and down stairs like between sets or, you know, to do costume changes and how all of those like variables can contribute to their understandings of like pain or injury or their ability to do what they need to do. And I think it also gets, it gets a little bit more challenging because, when you look at someone, especially in a professional realm, um, you know, your ability to perform is your, your income. Yeah. Right. And I know I had a very brief NFL stint, but in, (laughs) in my season in the NFL, as a player, right. Uh, I mean, some people have called me a player. Um, (laughs) I think, I think when, especially at, at that level, right. And you're talking about millions of dollars, I feel like the view of the person isn't necessarily as a person anymore. It becomes a dollar sign. Yeah. Right. And when you're trying to win games, win a Super Bowl, win championships, right? It it becomes if you're not on the field, you're not producing, you're not contributing actively to the the team environment. And, you know, your your ability to keep your job may be in question. Yeah. I mean that's that's the sad part. It's all about it comes back to production. And, you know, we're seeing that now in the world, so it's very relevant. <laughs> yes. If, pe- if people were wondering, we're um, recording this during quarantine. <laughs> I, I don't know when it will be released, but. I, I also don't know. It'll probably be, it's probably going to be like about a month or so before this one gets released, I would imagine. Oh, cool. So hopefully we're all like, you know, partially enjoying the outside world. It'll be like a time capsule. <laughs> No, but I I think you make fair points. It's hard. Like it's not, it's, you can't have this like naive optimism about it. Um, but there are, there are obviously things that we can do as a profession, uh, to make change. And I, I, I always think about this too, when I'm talking with the colleagues or students or like guest lectures is like, sometimes when you start diving into the weeds of some of these big issues, you start to realize how big they are. Um, in terms of like societal constructs, but it doesn't mean you can't have an impact like in your local setting where you're having like meaningful interactions, but even if it's just like one patient at a time or one dancer at a time, I think that can ripple out pretty, pretty big. So like, you know, when you start talking about it, it's like, it seems kind of daunting, but I think it's, 
I like looking at it from like more of a bottoms up kind of grassroots way where like you can make some local impact and then hopefully that kind of trickles out. And then, you know, you start a podcast and you have, you bring on me and I ramble. <laughs> That's okay. All zero of our current listeners, because you know, this podcast doesn't exist yet. Um, are really excited about what we're talking about. Well, it's good. You're stocking up episodes. That's the smart way to do it. Just, you know, building a base of content, man. It's kind of like conditioning. Uh, it's kind of like GPP. We're just getting in our, our brain reps, as Derek Miles would say. Yeah. Right. Although I don't really ascribe to that, you know, dualism, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, so you, let, let's 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 go on that that joke there. Can you explain what you mean by that? So if someone doesn't understand what you're talking about, about the like dualistic thinking of like the brain being separate or whatever. Talk, talk more about that. Oh, we want to do this. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's colloquial talk. It's like, it's cultural stuff. Um, it, it, I don't think it's meaningless, but, uh, we do have a tendency to separate like psychological from physical, like always, like that's very prevalent in culture, uh, at least like our Western culture. Um, and so the joke I made was like that, like your brain equates to all like cognition and all thinking and all psychology. Um, obviously, the brain is like really important. I would never negate the importance of the brain and its function in all of that. <laughs> you know, like some of the more famous like cognitive scientists like are essentially like started out as like brain neuroscience researchers. But um, it just kind of comes down to like. And this is this is my whole spiel too with like pain science and stuff like that. It's just kind of like seeing the person as like an entire person, um, and that you're not trying to separate them into parts off the bat. Like you will have to eventually kind of focus in on things to make meaningful change, but it's not like oh I'm doing my brain treatment now, you know, by addressing like their fear avoidance, and oh, now I'm doing my you know, physiological treatment at their tendon by, you know, making them do isometrics. Um, you know, I'm being very like, uh, like black and white, but that is all kind of wrapped up into one package. Uh, so I joke about it, but I am serious about it at the same time, <laughs> but I can't be too serious about it all the time. Cause no one will want to talk to me or like me. Um, but I really try hard to like see the person as a person and treat them as a whole kind of package. Um, and that's kind of like the way that's like important to my practice and like not even, not even just my practice, like outside of practice, um, which is a cool part about, I think, uh, physical therapy is that like, it's also spilled out into like my entire life. Not that like I quiz people on like uh, bones and muscle attachments. Um, no, you quiz people on like phenomenological concepts and constructs. Exactly. Which, I'm, which is what I'm doing right now. But like, you know, it, <laughs> it, it should like, it's kind of like, it, it's the, it's a quote. There's this quote. And I don't really like this quote and I'm going to misquote it, but it's like, don't explain your philosophy. kind of like live your philosophy. Um, I do think philosophy needs to be explained, but it should permeate through like all your interactions. You know, you shouldn't just talk the talk and then not do not, it shouldn't, you should be able to see it in practice and in your life. I'm just rambling. That didn't make any sense. <laughs> no, it made sense. <laughs> yeah. Just stop seeing people as like puzzles that need to be like separated and put back together again. I think like that's very attractive in medicine, especially physical therapy. I think a lot of con ed, um, 
lends itself to that. I'm not going to call any names out. You know you want to, though. Yeah, but it's, it's tacky because I've been there, too. You know, we, I think I think we're all allowed to kind of like swing into that a little bit and come out of it and kind of do some deep dives. But like you need to always remember that it's not it can't be that it's not that neat and simple. Yeah, it's more messy. No, I think and Danielle obviously like chime in on this thought, but I, I feel like sometimes the 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 idea when it comes to working with a dancer in the realm of like outpatient rehab that it is very easy to fall into that like puzzle type situation because of a lot of things that we've talked about, about like these, you know, almost identity driven understandings about pain or injury. I think the puzzle also comes from just the vocabulary that these clinicians are having to treat the dancers with. And like, do you even touch that or do you just give it to someone else who knows the vocabulary and knows about the aesthetic components of dance? Mm-hmm. But might go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's tough. <laughs> Is this where uh, we talk about the third space? No, no, we're beyond that now. Now we're kind of getting more into like Michael Ray territory <laughs> with like linguistics. Um, but yeah, you do need to talk to talk, right? You do need, you do need to understand all the pieces. Um, I think that's really important because then that then the dancer trusts you too. It's like how I treat and work with powerlifters. Um, I'm not by any means even close to like a mediocre powerlifter, but I at least like understand the training and some of the like feelings and I can, I know the vocabulary, I can talk the talk. And so like that comes across just in our conversation and I don't need to like, I don't need to show them that I powerlift. I just, I can display that. But then when I treat the powerlifter, I'm not, you know, doing essentially like the bullshit you know, I'm <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm, t- I'm still taking my kind of total approach that I take with any client or any patient, but they at least know that, like, I understand what their goals are. I understand kind of what their identity is. And then, like, the rehab looks meaningful because it resembles powerlifting. And then that's where, like, people like you can really fill the niche for, like, dancing because you know how the rehab can kind of resemble some meaning towards um, dancing, even if it's like very different, even if you're having them just do a goblet squat, um, you know, you may be cueing them like very subtly to like, you know, almost like it's just like a Jedi mind trick kind of thing. <laughs> I only say that cause like Jake's here, but um you're being subtle in your contextual factors and that you understand the demands and you're trying to really meet them where they're at. It's like, I wouldn't have a power lifter do an overhead squat, um, because they would probably wouldn't trust me. Um, but I would, you know, I can't think of an example for a dancer cause I don't work with dancers that much. No, but I think, I think that, I think it's something that is very important, especially with that population, because it, it can be really hard, right? It is a very specific identity and culture. Um, that's this like weird amalgam of like weird, obscure French terms and then like different movement styles. And I think one of the things that I struggle with and actively try to do is like, how do I show meaning between a particular exercise or, or something that we're going to do in the clinic or in the gym and, and show that there's value behind that from a dance perspective. And so like, and I've told, I've talked to Daniel about how horrible I am at choreography, but a lot of the times, like if I'm working with someone and I'm trying to, to get them to do like a combo or a track or whatever it is, 
in my head, I'm like, okay, we're going to go like lateral, lateral leap to like single leg hop to like an RDL. And then we're going to come out of that. We're going to do almost like a half pistol squat into like another jump. And then we're going to finish in, you know, like a, a, a squat position. And that looks something completely different. It's like jeté to, I don't even remember what I said, but like, you know, it might be like jeté, pot de PK, fondue. And then we're going to go arabesque into like a, a wide second, like, you know, grand plié. Um, and from a, from like an artistic standpoint, it probably looks terrible. Like, don't get me wrong. My, my staging is probably horrible, <laughs> but like in my mind, it's, I'm trying to do this like weird, like conversion equation of like lifting words to like French dance terms to try to get some sort of adaptable, like effect to actively load somebody. I'm sorry. You said, you said fondue and now I can only think about food. Um, no, I, I get that. And like, I don't even think it needs to be that. I mean, you have your own specific demands of your population, but it's, it's not like I'm trying to make everything super functional, like quote unquote functional too. Like you can do basic stuff that translates really well to the higher level skill. I think that's a hard thing too to like sell, if you want to use that word to, to patients. Is like, are we doing the basics? And I would probably think like most athletes aren't doing the basics, um, and then them understanding why the basics are important for their performance. Because I think that's like the that's our entry point is like, oh, this won't only this won't only make you feel better, but it may make you a better performer too. You start talking about runners like shaving off mileage times, or you start 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 talking about you know, hitting PRs out of rehab blocks. I think that's what kind of gets people perked up. Um, again, like that's not my area of expertise with dancing, but that could be, I could see that as like an entry point to some of these, into some of the more basic things. And then you can kind of scale up to maybe something a little bit more skill-based that in- involves a fondue dip, but I don't really know. You know what's called a fondue, right? No. Because it's fond to do. I think Jake brings up a good point though. Dancers have a really hard time doing simple exercises because they're used to their instructors giving them, you know, three, eight counts of choreography and then doing it. They never just give them one step. So I find a lot of my dancers get super bored and they lose interest if I just give them just do this one movement, yeah. you know? But I think that that's also reflective on the idea that, that we see a lot in that world of the only way to get better at dance is to do more dance. So like there's this heavy emphasis on constantly doing like skill-based and technical work to improve your mastery in those, that expression of those skills and a lot of times we go away from like what Mike was talking about, the basics and just creating that GPP, that base of athleticism in order to be able to express things like power, strength, endurance, speed, you know, on stage and in the context of dance. But I think I think that's one of the biggest things that we have to fight is like that, you know, the mindset sometimes is like I have to dance more. I have to dance more. And sometimes that's not really the best option for progression of of your performance or for for rehab. Well, I'm sure Danielle has opinions about this too, with it probably needs to start a lot younger. Um, you know, by the time they're college age and coming to see you, a lot of those formative years of creating that conditioning strength base, you know, not that it's too late, but it would be more beneficial if they were doing it when they were like 11 
and not 21. Derek Miles has entered the chat. Yes. Which I'm sure you'll have him on. But yeah, I don't know if you can think back, Danielle, to like some of your younger training years and like if that was important. Um, I I definitely can think back. And I remember thinking I wouldn't want to cross train or do any weightlifting or anything because of the fear of getting bulky. And I know Jake and I have talked about this a lot, but it's instilled in dancers at a very young age to not look bulky and if you want to be a professional ballet dancer, then you need to get your technique perfect in ballet. You need to do it and do it after you leave the studio, do it at home. I will openly admit that I slept in a, a split position like through many of my younger years just to increase my flexibility or try to get someone to sit on your feet to make them look better. Like You're going to do mm-hmm. whatever you can to be a better dancer. So. I think now the discussion is out there more for cross training, but it wasn't there. No, what, 14 years ago when I was 11. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll still be, I mean, it's still be an uphill battle because there's like, there's even, there's even sports. Like, I mean, it's still hard with like runners. Right. So it's like, I think dance still has like more obstacles in this way than some other sports. Um, But at the, at the, conversation keeps spreading it'll make more and more sense i mean if golfers are lifting now then like anything is possible (laughs) (laughs) so just this is a complete side note but when i was at exos doing a clinical rotation we were working with this uh patient who had come in and we obviously did our assessment and we identified you know like hey these are the needs these are things that we would recommend working on to help you with this particular complaint that you have or these goals that you've identified. So we had come up with this very like comprehensive plan between rehab and the strength and conditioning portion because that's, you know, Exos's model is everything's integrated, nutrition, strength training, rehab. Mm-hmm. And this guy comes in um, probably like a day or two later. Like he's he's done like two days of this program and he just is like not bought in very clearly. And so he comes into uh, a training session and goes up to the coach and is like, hey, so I'm not going to do these these squats or the deadlifts or you know, pressing movements or whatever. Um, I found this article in Men's Health that talks about how to get better at your golf swing. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> Did it work? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it was just like it was so funny because I, I mean, you just when you're talking about golfers lifting, that that's something that always like sticks in my mind. But I think that's also a a story of like you know not getting buy-in, maybe a lack of communication, or being too rooted in a specific identity or culture um, to maybe not see potentials for growth in like other avenues. Yeah, I mean these it it starts from like a social perspective and then you start from like the bottom up, you know, it's like Rory McIlroy starts winning and people are like, Oh, he deadlifts. So that means we must deadlift. You know, it's like maybe not the best reasoning because like the, the opposite reasoning also is what got people into trouble. Like, Oh, that person doesn't lift and they're good. So, you know, or that person's like not muscular and they're, and they're better at their sport. So I'm not going to do that. Um, so it's like, if you flip the dance community on his head and then like, if everyone does basic lifting, then everyone's going to do basic lifting. But how do you get to that point is the hard part. And that, you know, therein lies the rub is like, 
you have all these local studios and, and from like a resource perspective and from like a monetary perspective, I don't know that that is something that is feasible for a lot of places, especially in a lot of communities. If you're like, I'm in my Winchester is a little bit more rural than Mike's Winchester. Um, at least a lot of the surrounding areas. And so in some of these spaces, like there may not be as much access to that knowledge or that yeah. particular skill set within a company or studio. Yeah. And so it's, it's certainly it's challenging, but like that's where I feel like we really need to have these conversations and at the very least try to start shifting that that culture or the discussions that are had in, in regards to dance and maybe hoping to dispel some of these stigmas that we have about you know, being bulky or aversion to resistance training, that type of thing. Yeah. Almost, almost makes me think like, where should this occur? Cause like then you make a good point. Like, you know, it's not like everyone has access to a bunch of resources, whether it's money or time uh, or space to do this stuff. But like, you know, the school system seems like the easiest place to start with a lot of these things, you know, like physical education, I don't know. I don't know how we got down this rabbit hole, but like, you know, if you take the term like physical education and you like, you actually see what's going on. I don't know what's going on these days, but like, you know, physical education was mostly like playing, which is good. Like you want kids to play, but maybe there's other things that could be imp- implemented that, especially given the teachers more structure and more support and more education background, but we're we're totally off topic now. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is like maybe all the pressure shouldn't be on the dance studio to provide like a strength training experience, but that it should already have been happening somewhere else. Dance studios are really restricted with time and money. I've tried to reach out to a couple studios here and they're always prepping for another show or they have something going on that even me coming in as a free resource, they have difficulty with sometimes. So it takes time. And then when we go back to like identity and culture, I feel like there's still that the signal that we've kind of talked about that medical professional equals bad because they're going to take me away from dance. Yeah. We're the enemy. So how do you, I guess, since we're kind of talking about that a little bit, how do you combat something like that? How do you be, not become viewed as, as the enemy? How do you gain confidence rapport with somebody? A lot of it's like setting my expe- my expectations for the process. Um, uh, I, I always kind of preface that like, this is all about you. Like I don't have an agenda beyond like what your goals are and what you want to get back to. Like there's nothing too crazy, you know? Like if you want to wrestle crocodiles, uh, we can figure that out. But, <laughs> you know, and like I, especially for like, again, my niche is like runners and lifters. And a lot of times when runners and lifters have pain, they go see the doctor, they, they're told to not run or lift. Um, and so like, I don't, you know, like I value what you value. And so if you want to get back to doing this at your highest capability, then that's what the rehab is going to project as. I'm not trying to take you away from it. I'm trying to make you able to do it. And it might not look exactly the way you want to do it in the beginning, but it's going to be a version of it that progresses over time. So that's like my spiel. I usually will explicitly say that actually, like I have like a portion of my conversation where I like make sure I say that, like I have a couple different like scripts. I make sure I kind of get to eventually. That's like one of them. Do you rehearse them in the shower every morning? Um, I, I actually, I use Roscoe. Um, 
except his goals are just like sleep and like wait for me to feed him. So <laughs> who, who is Roscoe for those, for our listeners that may not like follow you exclusively on social media. Roscoe is a cat. Um, yeah, he's, he's our cat. <laughs> we, we adopted him. I I've met Roscoe twice now, I think. Um, and he's a very interesting muse. I can see why you, you like have such a deep, like, you know, ethereal and like metaphysical connection to him. Yeah. Well, we, you know, he, he needed some rehab himself. <clears throat> so did you do cat PT on him? No, I just created a, a supportive caring environment and then took him to, I then took him to the vet. <laughs> Gingivitis is not uh, something to mess around with. Uh, so make sure you floss. Because cats can't floss, so floss for them. Now I have just this like amazing image of you, like stooped over like a chair or a sofa with like mint flavored dental floss, just like in and around the gums. Oh, he would kill me. He would absolutely. He would he would jump on the ceiling if I ever did that. So how do you how do you floss a cat? I, I know this is like a you don't, very make, weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. Saying I'm... You should floss yourself. Because cats can't floss. Oh, I, I misinterpreted that. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. And again, I mean, that goes back to, like, the importance of communication, right? Because sometimes you don't know what the other person is is hearing or interpreting from from that interaction that you have. I really would like to do – this is, like, a serious conversation now. I would love to do, like, a qualitative research study on, like, like videotaping uh, clinical interaction. And then immediately interviewing the patient and the clinician and asking them, like, what the conversation was, essentially, you know. Um, and then maybe doing that again, like, a week later. And then comparing, like, you know, what the actual conversation was, like, transcript-wise. And then what was remembered or interpreted. And then doing that again at, like, a later date. Because, I mean, obviously my bias would be, like, that they'll be different. Um, and supposed to be different. But I think... That's kind of where my head's at these days. Like, there's an interpretive process to communication that I think gets glossed over. I think people just think it's like, I'm speaking at you. You're, like, recording all my words verbatim, and then you're using those words to, like, then project words at me. <laughs> and it's, it's like a, you know, a computer talking to a computer. Is this where we talk about the third space? Yeah, this is the third space. We're, we are in the third space. Well, I guess for us, as a fourth space. So what is, what is the third space? Uh, I well, I actually don't know if that's like the way I've read about it. Actually, is like more is called like intersubjectivity. I think John Quintner kind of helped in uh, make the third space like a popular term, but it's a like intersubjectivity or the third space kind of refers to the the actual communication between the clinician and the patient so that you're creating this new space for them to talk about their experience, but then you're interpreting their experience based on their interpretation of it. So this is where like more fancy words like hermeneutics get thrown out because hermeneutics is like interpretation of text. Um, so... You know, if uh, an author writes something and they have their own uh, 
meaning and intention for it, the reader is always going to take a different meaning from it. But that's kind of good. That's like what literature, that's how literature works. Um, so when you're communicating with somebody, it's never just like you're hearing exactly what they're experiencing and you're not going to be able to interpret that fully. So what you're getting is an interpretation from them of their experience. And then you're interpreting that through the communicate, through the communicative like language that you're using. And that it all, it all occurs like in that, like kind of metaphysical third space where like, it's like between you two. Um, and I think that's like medicine. That's like, the that is to be the root of medicine is like it starts there in that communicative process and then you can go out from there because if the patient doesn't come to you and actually talk to you uh, nothing can really nothing can start until that happens um, that's why i think that stuff's really important it's like it's like the foundation but people like don't think about it as much Daniel, did your brain just melt a little bit? A little bit, yeah. It was very deep for early Saturday morning. <laughs> it's early. Um, <laughs> I've been up since four. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and it's not true for every single part of medicine, right? But like most people seek us because there is some qualitative difference in their life that they are noticing. And so it starts there. You know, people aren't taking like objective measurements and then handing them to you like in our in our setting as much. You can make different arguments for other I think clinical settings, but for pain and injury related kind of orthopedic stuff, um, there's usually some kind of like qualitative difference in their life that's making them uh, dissatisfied with either their function or their identity. So then that needs to be told by them. Like you need to hear that. Or else, like, then the rehab is not meaningful because you're just you're just associating, like, knee pain with a vacuum. Not, nothing, like, no pain, like, exists in a vacuum. That's it. That's all the knowledge I have. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because, like, we obviously – I feel like we really started interacting after I had you on the OG, like, Movement Docs podcast. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to – I. And we, we've talked about this, you know, like the just the kind of like growth of understanding and like how we're different from time to time. But I think it's interesting to hear you talk about all this stuff now compared to like what, two, two years ago when I think yeah. you had just gotten into like neurotags with like Laura Mermosley and uh-huh. we're very uh-huh. David Butler and Laura Mer like explain pain mm-hmm. type. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. I think there's a way to value a lot of the technical work we do, right? A lot of the exercise prescription, a lot of like the way we can screen for, you know, other health risks and red flags and, you know, knowing, really knowing your physiology and, you know, it it depends what your passions are, but I don't want to ignore the technical aspects of the job, but I think there's a really good way of supporting the technical aspects with some of the stuff we're talking about right now. Like you should be able to do that and listen to your patient and understand what is actually like hurting them. And I use hurt as like a very broad term. So <laughs> can we can we deconstruct that a little bit? Like what what do you mean by hurt? Like I mean more like suffering. Okay, so what do you mean by suffering? Suffering to me means that again, like some some part of someone's identity is not being fulfilled um, because of pain or injury in my clinical work. 
obviously that can be different for everyone, but so, so, so pain doesn't pain doesn't automatically equal suffering. Is what I'm trying to say. And I think most people see us because they are suffering to some degree. And I'm not just I'm not, I'm not trying to say like you should be comparative comparative and suffering. And that suffering is a suffering, and if if it's you know if it's something valuable to them, then you should value it. And then like, you know, obviously correct me if I'm wrong here, but would you, it seems like what we deal with in a more, more of a clinical standpoint is like this idea of suffering, like this threat to identity, threat to what you're able to do uh, and who you view yourself as a human being versus like the actual complaint of like that pain experience. They're tied up, but they're, they're, I think they're different concepts. Um, For sure. And you can get into like some of like the, the weeds on this, but what is it? I think it's like uh, Eric Castle wrote a paper in the eighties. It was like about um, medical, the medical field and it's called the suffering. Um, and he talks, uh, Oh yeah. So the nature, the nature of suffering and the goals of medicine, Eric Castle, he actually wrote a book on it, uh, but it's, it's a short paper written in like 1980s two, I think and it's good because he talks about like, the difference between the physical like nature of pain and how there is a lot of like Judeo Christian origins to looking at suffering just as physical pain. Um, and then, you know, it's like Easter weekend, so I'm not going to like get too crazy about this and uh, offend some of the listeners, but that a lot of like suffering that's been written about over time is always equated to just like this, like more, raw physical pain and that's like somebody suffering but really suffering means more than that in terms of like this kind of what it means to that person's existence of who they are as a person kind of like what we've been talking about like their identity what they do who who they interact with uh the way they project themselves into the future and see themselves as like a you know a future planning person so yeah pain is different than suffering <laughs> so danielle would you say that like that suffering is is like a big part. I mean, that sounds terrible to say. Is do you feel like the? I guess the idea of suffering is is something that's like integral to that dance identity. I think that sounds terrible to say. I know it, really it does, does sound but... absolutely horrible. Well, I, I don't. Think... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's, it's an accepted component of dancing at a very high level. I think. I don't think it necessarily has to happen. And I hope, you know, that it doesn't happen. But I think suffering is a component that dancers experience because their money, their love, everything that they've always done, if they've made it to the professional or collegiate level, is dance. And they probably don't have another, you know, big thing in their life. It's such a huge part of their identity. Yeah, because you'll make sacrifices for what <clears throat> is important to you, right? So you may suffer in other areas of real life, but then that's maybe that's meaningful to you to create opportunities for what's like more valuable to you. So it's hard to say like it's kind of one of those things like you can't tell someone that they're in pain if they're not in pain. So if someone's like not suffering or they don't think they're suffering, then maybe they're not suffering. So I think that comes back to like your question, Jake, sounded more like suffering for a higher cause, which I don't I don't really think is the same suffering that why people seek us. Does that make sense? 
No, please enlighten me, senpai. So like that that's more of like the Judeo-Christian term of suffering, where it's like you're suffering because you're doing it for a higher cause. So like if you're in pain, but you give the performance of your life, then it was worth it, you know? Then that wasn't really suffering, but that's used in a language way of like I suffered through to like finally achieve this goal um, as comparative to someone who's suffering because they can't do that because of some, an obstacle, whether that's pain or injury, and then they come seek your help. I would say that's a different kind of suffering. Gotcha. That's the suffering that I think medicine is actually called towards. I don't think medicine is called towards the other form of suffering, which is more like more physical, but has like this like higher emotional kind of ex- existential goal. I would, I would maybe argue that like the, the athletic training field is probably facilitates that form of suffering, right? Because if you think about the the goal being like, then you know if you're in pain, or you're having a pain experience, the I feel like a lot of times the idea is how do we get you back on the field, back on the stage, versus how do we end this experience that you're having? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I just, there's different connotations to the word, so I think that's like the interesting part, and that's what Castle talks about in this paper. I'll Do you have you the, that? Yeah, I'll just send Can you the link so okay. you put it like in the show notes, which is something I feel like I always say, and then like I don't actually put them in my show notes, but no, <laughs> I trust else? I trust that you will put them in your show notes. We will try. Yeah, I I actually would like to read that because I don't I don't think you've we've discussed that or or you've sent me that previously. No, I'm kind of dropping that on you right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's uh, from 1982. Yeah, I guess I'm that too. It's a good one. Uh, Nicole Piamonti made me read it. So who is who is Nicole Piamonti? Because I've seen, and I mean, like, obviously, like I I kind of know who she is, but I've seen that name being tossed around a lot on like the Instagram spaces. Can you maybe enlighten us as to who she is and what her works are? Yeah. So. A lot of that is like my fault um, because I just randomly bought her book one day at the MIT Press and then told Zach to read it and then that kind of spilled out from there. But she's a, she has her PhD in medical humanities and she works at a med school, I believe it's Creighton um, in Texas, in Arizona. Um, she has a background in philosophy from like her undergrad and I think she ended up using that as her thesis or dissertation when she got her PhD in medical humanities, which is her book. So her book is called Afflicted and it's about like embedding vulnerability into like medical education and medical practice. So she talks a lot about uh, suffering and death and dying and how clinicians can be more vulnerable uh, with their patients to almost like witness their suffering and how that's meaningful for their practice, but also meaningful for them as a human. That way they don't become cold and detached and burn out kind of later in their career. So it's it really gets down to the root of like, what is medicine? What is like, is there a higher, higher call for doctors uh, beyond just an applied science, uh, like an applied science? So she heavily uh, draws from philosophy. Uh, particularly Martin Heidegger's philosophy. So, but yeah, she has a lot of good resources. Um, she's pointed me to a lot of good articles over the years and I've become friends with her, which is awesome because she's really smart. 
and a, and a and a cool voice to have that's a little bit in the medical field, but not also just another clinician. She has a little bit of a different perspective on it, which is good. So now this is we we kind of talked about this before the show, but I feel like we've kind of touched and skirted around this a little bit, but um, and it's kind of it's a little bit of a deep dive, but I feel like it would be maybe like a good place to like end on. Let's talk about being and having like the like being a body, having a body. Yeah. OK. Um, OK. So there's a paper. Uh, this is not my idea. <laughs> and I'll preface all this whole conversation or I guess not a preface. It's kind of like a, a postscript at this point that a lot of these ideas aren't mine. But there is a paper that came out, I think, last year, and it talks about the concepts of being a body and having a body. And it's, uh, yeah, actually, I'm pulling it up right now. So I don't, I don't butcher it. Uh, so it's by Marin Whirl. I'm sorry, I just butchered your name. Uh, it's called Being a Body and Having a Body, the Two-Fold Temporality of Embodied Intentionality. Don't worry about all that uh, gobble gook. But um, <laughs> it's... Um, it kind of gets back to like what I was talking about with like viewing pain as an object. So I think when you think about the actual experience of like your day to day, especially in relation to pain, because I believe this person who wrote this paper talks about pain and a little bit um, that your relationship to your body changes depending on what, what you're doing and if, and if you're in pain or not. So the way I see it is like being a body is kind of like more of our natural state where we're kind of engaged in activity and kind of projecting outwardly. So I, I use like a hiking analogy a lot. So like if you're hiking on a trail, you're just thinking about the path, you're looking, you're like taking in some of the trees, you're, you know, you're talking to your friend, you're like looking for rocks. So you're very like focused like outwardly and you're not really like thinking internally. Um, you're not, you know, really focused on yourself as a, like an object you're just kind of always kind of projecting outward until you like twist and sprain your ankle and all of a sudden your attention is then like focused on like having an ankle you know you weren't thinking about your ankle before but now you are and so now every step is different because now you're thinking of like how do i position my foot in my ankle so i don't hurt it um you know big rocks become like impossible to traverse like little rocks become annoying when before they they weren't you were just kind of filtering them out um you know you, you're no longer like admiring like the trees and the weather so i think there's like a flip in that experience so i think a lot of times um what i think about in rehab is a lot of people come to see me with that predominant having a body experience especially because like not only from their actual experience, but like supported by the medical field, whether they have imaging done or they're explained like very you know, black and white structural explanations of why they're in pain. So then, you know, they're, they're more like authentic kind of outwardly being is not natural to them anymore. And so I think about how do I get them back to that point? Cause I don't think it's like bad to be there, but that's their starting point. I'm like, I'm concerned with like how do I remove a lot of those um, kind of having a body thoughts and having a body experiences, um, and it could be as simple as like oh you just remove the pain and then that'll be how it goes. But think about how many p- 
patients you see who have been discharged by other clinicians who have become like, you know, overly obsessed with minutia that doesn't really matter anymore. So like, you know, who you were before an injury is going to be different than who you are after, but I would hope it's like a more positive journey than like now, every time I go hiking, I am like super conscious about my left ankle rather than just like enjoying the hike. Um, that's kind of like my story. Uh, the paper is a lot more confusing. There's a lot more like, like philosophical language that will turn people off. <laughs> but, um, it's all kind of oriented towards like, uh, time. Like, am I looking at myself as someone who's like future planning and can kind of focus on like my tasks and my activities or am I more like present in the moment and really concerned with like my body as an object? Um, there's not like, it's not, uh, it's not good or bad, but I would argue that maybe you want to be more at one end of the spectrum than on the other end of the spectrum. Cause it can be helpful in situations. And that, that's the reason that I wanted to, to kind of like touch on that is I feel like it, that idea of like, um, focusing on like the tasks and like the future, that type of thing versus like being very, very like concerned with like the the present and like how do i how do i manage this how do i get around this i feel like those things from like a philosophical and like ideological perspective are very very prevalent when you're working with dancers because i feel like there is this this natural tendency to be like oh well i have i have this you know i've had ankle pain i've had hip pain for years you know like some something chronic that's been going on and because of that i think sometimes we can they can become maybe a little bit hyper vigilant with positions that they're in or adverse certain positions and maybe set it up for you know some of those things we see clinically as far as like potentially fear avoidance or other stigmas or whatever that we've talked about yeah it's a super fascinating topic to me i actually wrote an article that i'm hoping will get published soon on exactly all that so I, like i kind of deconstruct fear avoidance hypervigilance um with some of the more like classic models of persistent pain and try to update it into more of this kind of cognitive science philosophical approach um so yeah if it comes out if people like it then i will send it to you I mean, I would expect that you would send it to me regardless, but. Well, yeah, eventually. Um, <laughs> Cause it's also part of the bigger kind of project of the book, but yeah. Okay. Now, listening to like both of us spiel about this whole, like being and having thing. What, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Have you read that article before Danielle? I've never this, like, read that article. Yeah, no, I've never read that. And I would agree, dancers are very focused on the now or the show coming up in one week. And I think they have a really hard time seeing long-term into the future. So I think that's a great source of education for them. And obviously, yeah. like, I would not recommend that, that most dancers read this particular <laughs> article. I think it's, like, very hard to navigate through from, like, a philosophical and, like, just yeah. perspective. You know, but I, I think this the, is a conversation I have with patients, like, you know, like verbatim like this, like, no, no, never. <laughs> but the, the, just like the philosophical idea that, you know, you can either be in kind of like a natural flow state where you're experiencing life, you're interacting with your environment, you're thinking about the future, you know, you feel, oh, I can't make that assumption that you feel normal because what is normal, but I mean, you're kind of in that flow state where things, things happen. Yeah. And then something comes along. There's this like 
event, injury, whatever it is that somehow threatens that identity of who you are and that you now view your body or a part of your body as an object. And that kind of messes with your identity, right? It's like, I now have an injury. I now have an ankle sprain. I now have a labral tear. And I think that the way that our medical system is built and Mike kind of touched on this is that once, especially I think in the dance population, when you introduce like positive imaging findings, like that can be a huge threat to your identity as a person or, or how you think of yourself in the context of activities that you do or dance. And so that's where like it is, I think it's a fascinating subject and discussion to have on on that. And it's something that I, I feel like I hopefully try to uh, think about and discuss, you know, with my patients, especially in the performing arts world, because I think that in a context like, you know, playing an instrument or performing on stage that having a body or having an, an ankle sprain, having tendonitis can really interfere with, you know, your ability to just do what you want to do and express yourself. Yeah. I think what I end up kind of concluding with that article is like in, in a short term way, those having moments are, can be beneficial. I think what ends up being, this is like purely opinion and like a, like a philosophical take, but like what ends up being an issue is like when, when you're, being is actually like pain and injury like you know like your knee becomes like who you are and your story you know and so all of a sudden you're not like being a body towards dancing you're like being a knee towards pain that sounds really pretentious but (laughs) (laughs) it's like it becomes it becomes your identity then like your pain and injury becomes your identity and i think that's very sad and unfortunate for a lot of people. That's what that's what that's what I think is actually like a big motivation and driver is like seeing those patients and just being like you know, just yeah like I would not want to put I would not want to set someone up for that you know like some they had to be that was like a journey they got to um, you know I'm not saying it's like not their fault uh, that they have no part in it but that other people probably supported that in terms of how they got there. And I think like a lot of that's on us as like a medical field. And and I think that kind of comes back to this larger discussion that we've had about regardless of what the specific topic is, trying to find ways to, to change that like status quo and challenge it. Um, especially in a dance community, right? When we talk about things that can be very persistent and become part of who we are, right? We don't want to become a knee or a hip or my low back, right? We want to have this identity as someone who's able to perform at a very high level and, you know, get that piece that you want or become first chair, you know, like clarinet or oboe, right? And I, I think that, like, it all kind of comes back down to this, this thing that we have to manage as a clinician when we talk about like identity and communication and all that stuff and figuring out how we can be better at navigating some of these discussions around pain, suffering, identity and performance. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, I never really realized it until later on how like uniquely positioned we are as like medical practitioners, you know, it, it is not purely an applied science because we are working with like humans who are suffering in my opinion. So I feel like we're kind of coming up on our, like our time limit here. Um, do you have Daniel, do you have a rapid fire question that that you you want to ask? Let's see. What is an unusual habit 
or an absurd thing that you love? Go. An unusual habit. Um, <laughs> besides, like, reading really pretentious books that don't make any sense. Um, <laughs> or flossing your cat's teeth, I guess. Yeah, flossing my cat's teeth. Um <laughs> I, uh, speaking of dance, I I do feel like I like am goofy and dance a lot, like in the clinic, <laughs> and people that actually work with me can like uh, ascribe to that. Like I try, I'm not actually this serious like day to day. I think I just want to yeah, like most of my conversations on podcasts and online come across very serious, but I try not to take myself too seriously uh, in the day to day. Because it comes across to like patients and coworkers, and that's like not like it's who I am too. It's not like I'm trying to do that, but um, I also I'll get made fun of this. I really like "Promiscuous Girl" by Nelly Furtado. So that's that's just my jam. If that comes out yeah, on the clinic, if that comes song. on the clinic, yeah, if that comes on the clinic, it's over. <laughs> that's a joke. For, that's a joke. Like a few people will get. So maybe one of your listeners will be one of those people. <laughs> I would, I would, I would kind of like echo that the, your whole like not serious all the time thing, because I feel like a vast amount of our interactions, at least at this point are either sending each other like cat videos and memes and, or like weird parody accounts of fast food restaurant memes. Oh yeah. I have like third or fourth level meme accounts that I follow that, you know, you, you would need, you know, not everyone gets sent those memes. Yeah, it's like a four. It's like a four hundred level class. I can't really. I can't submit. I can't submit to everyone. <laughs> it's like a. It's like a higher level of like. It's. It's just really like if you if you look at it from an objective standpoint, like it's really not that humorous and it's very strange. But yeah, we're we're just it's like a weird meme rabbit hole of like Kerger Bing memes and like <laughs> cat videos, which I I think is really what the internet is for. Well, that's how it began, right? Like it, well, I thought Al Gore didn't Al Gore invent the internet? Yeah, but then like you know, like can I have a cheeseburger was like you know the invention of like why the internet exists, and then you know like I downloaded TikTok just to like look at cat videos, and then I'm like there's not enough cat videos, and I'm horrified by this. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Danielle has not. We we haven't gotten to that part of our friendship where I just like start sending you like random animal videos. No, not yet. Yeah. We'll give it like three months and then you'll be there. <laughs> it's, it's a fun it's, time. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, it, it's weird too because I feel like we a lot of our interactions like when I because I I'd ask you to be like my, a mentor, um, kind of like a loose mentorship where we would like share ideas and stuff. Yeah. Um, and which really just was him sending me like ridiculous articles, like the one that we just talked about and like, go read this, like struggle with it. Let your frontal cortex just like melt into a, a puddle of sadness. And then we'll, we'll talk about this from a philosophical perspective. And then it's just become like, like life stuff happened. And then it just became like memes and cat videos. Yeah. Which well, is it's like, yeah, it's the highest, that's transcendence. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. Well, Mike, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show with us today. Uh, it was a blast. Uh, we definitely learned a lot and had like a great interaction. And I'm hoping that 
even though some of this stuff may seem initially like unaccept or unaccessible or complicated or confusing that hopefully we've kind of presented in a way that's a little bit more digestible to the average person. Cause I do think that a lot of these concepts, when we think about them, they can be something that we can all apply and think about whether it's from a clinical perspective or, you know, as a dancer or performing artist. Um, so if anyone listening on the show wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, probably Instagram. Yeah. I'm a motto underscore barbell medicine. Like I'm, I'll, I'll respond to DMs and stuff like that. Even though I primarily use that platform to look at cat memes, um, I do use it as a communi- as a communication platform as well. <laughs> All right, so I will put I'll put your uh, Instagram handle in the in the description. Danielle, what is your IG handle? Okay, so Jake is gonna make fun of me forever for it, but it's Danielle, and then it's A N I C E underscore D P T. So it looks like Danielle, a nice D P T, but it's really just my middle name. I swear. She's she's a very nice P T though. I promise. She seems like a yeah. And then you can find me on my podcast slash horrible meme account slash strongman account um, at TMD underscore the movement docs on IG. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or have a topic that you would like us to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening, and remember, as always, don't break a leg.